So brothers Andrew and Simon ran a small fishing fleet in the Sea of Galilee in partnership with those other brothers, James and John. Carp and mullet and sardines is what they were after. Also tilapia, which appears even today on restaurant menus under the picturesque name of St. Peter's Fish. So there they are, Simon and Andrew, minding their own business, mending their torn nets and patching their storm-tossed sails when this wild-eyed preacher shuffles past on the beach and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. And Mark tells us that immediately Andrew and Simon began to follow Jesus. Mark's in too much of a hurry to explain why they dropped their very livelihood to follow this idealistic iconoclast across the Palestinian countryside. That's another sermon maybe. In any case, Jesus, with Simon and Andrew in tow now, goes a few yards further down the beach and comes across two more brothers, John and James Barzebedee, who also abandoned their boats and their livelihood for Jesus' improbable project. And that, of course, is the beginning and committed core of Jesus' little band of merry men, two sets of brothers, Andrew and Simon and James and John. Three of the four brothers, of course, instantly rocket to prominence in Jesus' little circle of 12 disciples. Peter, James, and John are Jesus' three disciples, his inner sanctum among the broader circle of 12. Peter, James, and John are the ones who accompany Jesus to the summit of the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are the ones who wandered into the depths of the Garden of Gethsemane when on the last day of his life Jesus was praying to his God for his life. Peter, James, and John are one of the most famous trinities after Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Peter, James, and John, it rolls off the tongue like... Moe and Larry and Curly, or Chico, Harpo and Groucho, or Tinker to Evers to Chance, or Huey, Dewey and Louie, or Pavarotti, Domingo and Carreras, or Harry, Ron and Hermione, or Snap, Crackle and Pop, or Bacon, Lettuce and Tomato. Peter, James and John. What happened to the fourth brother? Simon Peter becomes the shining star of all four Gospels, of course, so we know quite a, a bit about him. Jesus takes one look at Simon and instantly gives him the nickname Peter in Greek or Cephas in Aramaic. Peter in Greek and Cephas in Aramaic mean rock. Now, I'm not sure I ever really paid attention to this before, but neither Peter in Greek nor Cephas in Aramaic is a name parents would christen their babies with at birth. It's a nickname. It's not something you're born with, but something you earn later in life. It's an affectionate way for friends and family to gather up the essential and endearing attributes that make you, you. I was with a friend at dinner the other night and he was telling me about the expedition, the exciting expedition that he's going to take later this spring. He's a, about to embark on a horse riding trip to the American Southwest. He's going to join a bunch of other urban city slickers who are going to abandon their soft suburban existence for a week to ride horses in the Arizona desert and sleep under the stars on the rocks. Most of these guys have done this a lot of times, but my friend's a little nervous. He's a virgin, so to speak. This is his maiden voyage. He's never ridden anything more rambunctious than a Metra train bench or a Herman Miller office chair. And he's a little nervous. 
So he says, he told his friend, I have two requests. First of all, I don't want a horse called the Widowmaker. <laughs> he says, give me Buttercup. And the other request he made after he found out that everybody gets a nickname on these trips, he says, I want to choose my nickname. He says, I want to be called Flint. Sort of a cousin nickname to Peter, the Rock. I want to be called Flint. Not after the city in Michigan, but after the ruthless cowboy in the Louis L'Amour novel. But my friend's fellow cowboys tell him, you don't get to choose your own nickname, partner. You have to earn that. Maybe we'll call you Buttercup. So, over the course of his apostolic career, Simon does not choose but earns his nickname Rocky. We do it today. Rocky is someone we call who has a thick Philadelphia accent and quick fists and rock-solid abs and rough street smarts, but is someone who doesn't take to quoting Aristotle and Shakespeare on a regular basis. So, when we call Simon Peter a common enough name today, we're really cloaking what Jesus was getting at when Jesus called Peter, Peter called Simon, Rocky. Maybe Peter said things like, yo, Adrian, and shadow boxed with slabs of carp and had a bulldog named Butkus. Jesus takes one look at Simon and gives him the nickname Peter or Rocky for those quick fists and that Philadelphia accent but also because he knows that Peter will become the dense but dependable foundation for an institution which today numbers two billion souls and is as eternal as anything else on this spinning rock. We know a lot about Rocky, less about his younger brother Andrew. No nickname for Andrew, just Rocky's little brother. That's his claim to fame. Are you somebody's brother or sister? Not just anybody's brother, but somebody's brother. Did you make your ambling way through an academic career overshadowed by a more famous sibling with a stratospheric GPA, a closet full of trophies and all-state awards, a pick of full rides to Duke Northwestern or Cal Berkeley, and a following pack of adoring co-eds. While you made your way through to a B-minus career and made the JV chess team but never the varsity, never did manage to get a date for the senior prom, and then went on to a stellar career in junior college. Every day, on the first day of, every year on the first day of school, did you face the teacher's breathless awestruck question, are you Rocky's little brother? How would you like to be, I don't know, Tom Brady's backup, or Einstein's wife, Don Quixote's sidekick, Sandy Koufax's catcher, Warren Buffett's secretary? How would you like to be Martin Luther King's organist? No matter what you played and how masterfully, it would never be as musical as one of his sermons. How would you like to be Martin Luther King's organist? Who played second base with Ernie Banks? Who took his graceful underhand toss on a 6-4-3 double play? Here's an aside to pay respect to a great man. 
Year before last, President Obama awarded Ernie Banks the Presidential Medal of Freedom. This is the highest civilian award an American can win. Can you believe this? President Obama is from the South Side. He's a Chicago White Sox fan, and he gave the Presidential Medal of Freedom to a cub. At the ceremony, Ernie Banks handed President Obama one of Jackie Robinson's bats. Can it get any better than that? On the other hand, where would Ernie Banks be without Gene Baker? Where would Dr. King be without his organist? Where would Koufax be without his catcher or Buffett without his secretary or most of all, Quixote without Sancho Panza? Scientists sometimes wonder if Einstein's wife didn't help him with a theory of special relativity. There's plenty of room for somebody's brother to shine. Every time we meet Andrew in the gospel, he's dragging somebody to Jesus. It was Andrew who found the little boy with the five loaves and two fishes that Jesus turned into a lavish banquet for 5,000. A little later, some Greeks find Andrew and announce, Sir, we would see Jesus. Presumably because not just anybody earned an automatic audience with Jesus. Most of the time when Entertainment Tonight or the New York Times phoned for an interview, Jesus would have his press secretary say, no comment. But these sophisticated, erudite Greeks come to Andrew and say, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Andrew thinks about that for a minute and lets them through and they have an audience with Jesus. And we have no idea how that audience went. But you could guess that it was, for all practical purposes, the beginning of the European Gentile church. This is 20 years before St. Paul. Sir, we would see Jesus. So Andrew is the patron saint of evangelists everywhere. If you invite your neighbor to church, Andrew is your patron saint. Anybody can drag people to, to Jesus. And so this is a sermon for somebody's brother, the overshadowed, the eclipsed, the unsung. Somebody invites you to serve as a trustee of this church because you said no, because you didn't think of yourself as a leader. What makes your self-assessment trump the opinion of the sanctified community? Did somebody ask you to teach Sunday school, but you declined because you don't know which testament the book of Obadiah is in? So what? No, doesn't, neither does anybody else. Somebody asks you to go to Guatemala with the high school kids, but you declined because you don't speak Spanish and you don't know which end of the hammer to hold and you stammer cluelessly in the presence of teenagers. Can you learn? It's no fun being Tom Brady's backup or Don Quixote's sidekick. How would you like to be Elgin Baylor's teammate? Elgin Baylor played basketball for the Minnesota, later the Los Angeles Lakers in the 1960s. He was one of the greatest scoring machines the NBA has ever seen. After his playing career was over much later, one of his teammates 
said, you remember how they used to call Julius Irving of the 76ers, 76ers Dr. J because of the magic he did on the basketball court? One of Elgin Baylor's teammates said much later, if Julius Irving was Dr. J, Elgin Baylor was a brain surgeon on the basketball court. Maybe the most underrated player in NBA history. Rod Hundley was an Elgin Baylor's roommate for the Lakers. Have you ever heard of Hot Rod Hundley? A few people in the last service actually had. On November 15, 1960, Elgin Baylor scored 71 points against the New York Knicks at Madison Square Garden. At the time, it was the highest single-game point total by a single player in NBA history. A couple years later, Will Chamberlain scored 100 points, also against the Knicks. Somebody needs them to teach the Knicks how to play defense. But in any case, on November 15, 1960, Elgin Baylor scored 71 points against the Knicks. Elgin Baylor's teammate, Rod Hundley, scored two. And as Elgin Baylor and Rod Hundley are getting into a taxi outside Madison Square Garden that night, Rod turns to Elgin and says, What a night we had, buddy. 73 points between us. <laughs> There's somebody's brother who refuses to minimize his contribution to the cause. There's somebody who knows that great accomplishments are always a team effort. It is always rocky Rocky's brother, and God. Andrew was always dragging people to Jesus, and so therefore he is the patron saint of evangelists everywhere. Also, of course, the patron saint of Scotland, and therefore, I guess, the patron saint of golfers, whiskey distillers, and Presbyterians. Just somebody's brother, these are in their pews. We see Andrew every time we look at the United Kingdom's Union Jack. Do you notice that there are three crosses in the Union Jack? There's a square red one for England's St. George and an X-shaped red one for Ireland's St. Patrick and a white X-shaped cross for Scotland's St. Andrew. You put them together, and you get the Union Jack. Legend has it, you see, that Andrew took the gospel to the ends of the earth and was finally martyred on an X-shaped cross. Just somebody's brother. Follow me, said Jesus on that Galilean shore so many years ago. Follow me, and I will help you change the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.